Our scripture lesson today is taken from the Gospel of John, page 1,239 in the Pew Bible, 1,239, John 12, beginning at uh, verse 35, and reading through verse 43. John 12, verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, and the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should with their eyes, should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, John chapter 12 describes to us the events of Palm Sunday. And now John is bringing that account to a close and is about to introduce in the next chapter Jesus' farewell discourse, which goes on for several chapters, where Jesus gives uh, very uh, lengthy instruction to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. But before he starts with the farewell discourse in chapter 13, he concludes chapter 12 by giving us a summary of Jesus's earthly ministry. That ministry is about to come to an end. Jesus is no longer going about from town to town and village to village and uh, coming to Jerusalem from time to time to participate in various festivals. The three years of his public ministry, his ministry of miracles and so forth, all of that is coming to an end. And John wants to sum it up for us and tell us what effect it has had upon Israel. And the effect is not good. The report is not encouraging. The vast majority of people to whom Jesus preached and to whom he showed his miracles did not believe in him. We were warned of this in the first chapter where John, the gospel writer, tells us he came to his own and his own received him not. However, the rejection was not total and complete. There were some who believed, the disciples especially, the inner circle and others. Now John takes pains to describe to us this remarkable and sad situation 
and explain to us why it has come about. Why is it that so many have not accepted Jesus as their Savior? And he gives us a number of things to think about, and they are outlined for you in the bulletin. And the first one of those is that this is not the fault of Jesus. The fact that so many do not believe in him is not Jesus' fault. Jesus has done many signs and wonders before them, John writes. Although he had done so many signs before them, says John, he had demonstrated his glory to them. You remember the first sign, changing water to wine. John sums that up by saying this was the first of the signs by which Jesus displayed his glory. Each one of the signs, the uh, changing of water to wine, the healing of the official son in Capernaum, the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda who had been lame for 38 years, the the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the healing of a man born blind, and finally the raising of Lazarus. These seven great signs that John focuses on, although Jesus did many other miracles as well, but John focuses on these seven. These and the many other miracles that Jesus performed manifested his glory. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full and of grace and truth. Jesus has shown light on them. The sun is shining brightly, you know, the sun of God's glory, or the, the radiance of God's glory, like the sun in the sky, is, is pouring down on the people of Israel. And in addition to these demonstrations of his divine power and majesty and glory, there is the teaching of Jesus. He went about from town to town and village to village and, and uh, uh, in uh, synagogue and uh, even in the courts of the temple. He taught the people and he taught them as one having authority and he taught them with a wisdom that amazed them. This too was a bright light shining among them. Walk in the light while you have the light with you, says Jesus. He urges them to put their, tr- uh, their trust in him in light of all the, the light that he has shed abroad among them, the light of his glory, the light of his teaching. Uh, no one could say that Jesus hadn't done enough to convince them. Any unbiased, rational per- man or woman willing to consider the evidence would have to conclude that Jesus was the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world and that he had demonstrated things that uh, revealed his divinity, that we should worship him and trust him and serve him. And the same, of course, is true today. We have the record of all these things written down for us in the Gospels and uh, explained in the epistles and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The historical evidence that Jesus did what the Bible says he did is as convincing as any historical evidence for any true event of the past. In fact, we can can be more certain about Jesus' resurrection than we can about many events of ancient history that no one ever thinks to doubt. Some of you may know the uh, name of a prominent Christian apologist for the last Uh, 50 years or so by the name of Josh McDowell. As a college student, he uh, decided, uh, and as a college student and atheist, he decided to write a college paper to prove that Christ had not been resurrected from the dead. 
And as a result of the research that he did, he became a Christian and devoted the rest of his life to defending the historical accuracy of the Bible. There are other, uh, there are organizations as well that uh, show us uh, that we can trust the Bible, that it is uh, accurate, it is historical, it is scientific, it is in agreement with reality because um, the real world is God's world and God's, uh, the Bible is God's word describing us uh, to us how we ought to uh, view the world. Think of uh, an organization like Answers in, Generous, Answers in Genesis who gives us uh, numerous uh, scientific evidence to believe that God created the world in uh, six days of ordinary duration, each having a morning and an evening and together constituting a, a normal week. Scientific evidence abounds to support what uh, the Bible says plainly and to contradict such uh, theories as evolution. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith uh, does not begin where knowledge leaves off, as some people say. Faith is very reasonable. It makes sense because the real world is God's world. The Jews who did not believe and the modern man who does not believe can't blame God. Uh, for not making the case clear and convincing. Well then, how did this come about? How is it that the people to whom God sent Jesus, the people who had been anticipating his coming, how come the majority of them did not believe? That's a very important question. It's an important question because the last, for the last 2,000 years, critics of the Christian faith have been saying, if the Jews didn't believe in him, the very people to whom uh, he went and who saw him and heard him in person, if they didn't believe, why should we believe? They were first-hand eyewitnesses and they rejected him, therefore we should reject him too. The Bible recognizes that this is a question that needs to be answered. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? The Apostle Paul devotes uh, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 to trying to explain why uh, the Jews did not believe in Jesus. And John also gives us information to answer that question here. One of the first things he says is that this was not unexpected, that uh, this was prophesied by Isaiah. God knew that this was going to happen and he revealed it to his servants in ancient times. John 12, verse 38 of our text quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1, where uh, John writes, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now Isaiah was writing descriptive of what he had experienced. He had come to Israel with a word from God and Israel had not listened to him, had not believed him. Uh, God had revealed his arm. You know, uh, when I read from the Ten Commandments, we read there how God with uh, his right hand and his strong arm brought up Israel out of Egypt. Well, God's uh, strong arm is, uh, is his work of salvation. God has revealed his salvation to his people. 
uh, and he has revealed his word, and Isaiah says, nobody believes. Who's believed? Nobody's believed. That was his experience. But Isaiah's words were not only descriptive of his own experience, he's prophesying, John is showing, that he was being prophetic of what would happen when the Christ came into the world. He tells us in uh, uh, verse 41 that Isaiah was not writing, first of all, about his own experience, but was writing because he had seen his glory, seen the glory of Jesus, and he was writing about Jesus. Isaiah understood that his experience was prophetic of how the suffering servant of the Lord, about whom he wrote, would be received when God sent him into the world. You know, we could could say that Isaiah might have been able to figure this out on his own without any divine revelation. I mean, how was Moses received by the people of God? Not well. And... uh, how were the, uh, the judges of Israel received? Well, again and again, they, they were thankful when they showed up, but they, uh, the repentance didn't last long. And so many of the, uh, the prophets and the uh, godly priests were persecuted and uh, killed, martyred for the faith. Uh, Israel's unfaithfulness down through the period of the judges, down through the period of the kings, down through the period of the divided monarchy. Israel's unfaithfulness again and again could have led Isaiah to say, I bet you when the Messiah comes, they're going to do the same thing. But he didn't have to rely on his experience. He didn't have to rely on his uh, supposition or his deduction from uh, historical evidence. We're told that he had a vision of Christ. And speaking uh, concerning that vision, he cries out, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord uh, been revealed? Two thoughts on this. First of all, we want to say that because the rejection of Jesus was prophesied 600 years before it happened, that our dispensational brothers are mistaken, quite seriously mistaken, when they say that Jesus was surprised by this rejection and had to uh, Uh, drop back to plan B and introduce a church age for the Gentiles as a plan B because uh, the Jews weren't ready for him yet. Uh, And uh, that is uh, what uh, dispensationalism teaches, but uh, that doesn't agree with the scriptures that say we knew all along that Israel wasn't going to accept him. Isaiah had prophesied it. Secondly, uh, this rejection testifies to us just how powerful sin is and how thoroughly it blinds not just the Gentile world, but even the covenant community of God. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are all blind and deaf to the glory of God and to his strong arm and to his revelation. Uh, it always falls on deaf ears unless God in his grace uh, has mercy upon us, makes us alive, gives us new hearts, opens our ears, opens our eyes, and enables us to see and understand. Unbelief is our default mode. It's the natural condition of fallen man. It's where Satan wants to keep us, and it's where Satan wants to bring us back to if ever our eyes should be opened. Uh, Unbelief is uh, the natural 
result of sin and death reigning in us. And uh, it is true of the Jews as well. And so it was prophesied in advance and uh, we should not be surprised by it. It is the natural state. Unbelief is the natural state of fallen humanity apart from the grace of God. Another thing that John wants us to understand is that not only was this foreseen 600 years in advance, but uh, it is done deliberately by God as a punishment for Israel's sin. John tells us in verse 40, he, meaning God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. Their unbelief is the direct result of God hardening their hearts. Now that's, that's hard to understand. Why would God do this? Doesn't God want us to believe in him? Why does God harden hearts? Well, it is a punishment from God. We read about this sort of thing in Romans chapter 1 where it speaks of how the unrighteous suppress the truth and do not honor God as God or give him thanks. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And when they do that, what does God do? Well, then God gives up on them. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions and God gave them up to a debased mind. He deserts them. He turns his back on them. He lets sin run rampant in their lives by withdrawing his restraining power. Because they rejected God, God gave up on them. To harden their hearts, all God has to do is withdraw himself from them and let their sins have an even greater effect on their minds and hearts. And we should be aware of the fact that, that God is always restraining sin in the world by both external and internal means. External means include governments that punish evildoers, that put people in jail for doing wicked things. That's one way that God restrains wickedness in the world, but God also restrains wickedness in the world in every human heart by giving them a conscience and uh, making them to uh, uh, be afraid of doing really bad things. God restrains the wicked, but when the wicked become especially wicked in spite when God reveals himself to them and they still uh, rebel against them, then he withdraws himself from them. And in redrawing himself from them, they become even more wicked and, uh, and they, they often self-destruct because sin indeed is uh, something that kills. And uh, when we see people go off the rails, so to speak, we often see that their behavior results in their own destruction, their own demise, or some other great uh, tragedy that they bring upon themselves. You know, we read uh, in uh, verse 36, Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. He departed and was hidden from them. He, he withdrew himself. He, he, he had spent three years with them, teaching them, showing them his glory. They didn't believe in him, so he withdraws and he hides himself from them. God never 
uh, hardens the hearts of innocent people who are desirous of salvation. Paul speaks of this in 2 Thessalonians, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. He never hardens innocent people. Hardening is not a a harsh or capricious or arbitrary or manipulative act depriving innocence of salvation, uh, a salvation that they would uh, otherwise love to have. It's a judgment and a punishment on those who have rejected salvation freely and graciously offered. Now this shows that God is in complete control of all things. He uh, hardens whom he wants to harden and he uh, softens the hearts of those whom he softens. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy and hardens those whom he will harden. And some will object, well then, why does God still punish us? If uh, he's sovereign and he's in control, how can he still uh, treat us like responsible human beings? Well, we don't have a great answer to that question because our God is infinite and we're finite and we ought to expect to bump our noses against an infinite God and not be able to thoroughly comprehend him. He gives us true knowledge, but we're not capable of receiving exhaustive knowledge. But the fact that he is in control gives us hope because as he hardens, he also shows mercy. No sinner is so hardened in sin that they cannot cry out to God for mercy and receive mercy for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He will never turn you away if you cry out to him for help. If you cry out, Lord, save me, he hears your cry and he answers that cry. The very fact that you are crying out to him is, the fact, is evidence of the fact that he has already shown mercy to you. And so in answering, why, why did this happen? Why, why did Israel not believe? We have to say, well, it was expected and it is from God in punishment for the fact that they had the light among them for so long and yet rejected the light. They refused to walk in the light. They refused to become sons of the light. So God hardens their heart and leaves them in their sin. He walks away from them. He hides from them and turns now to the Gentile world in the uh, uh, age of uh, Pentecost in which we are now living. But one more thing we need to say about this hardening of Israel, and that is that it was not complete. In chapter one, there was this statement, he came to his own and his own received him not, but then it was qualified by saying, but those who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And here also we're told that they did not believe in him, yet we're also told, nevertheless, many believed in him. The disciples believed in him, and after the crucifixion, there were about 120 believers in Jerusalem and perhaps many more throughout Judea and Galilee. Even some of the Jewish leadership believed in Jesus. We know of at least two, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who, who went public with their faith at the time of the crucifixion by asking for the body of Jesus and by giving him a decent burial and therefore uh, exposing themselves to the wrath of their fellow uh, Sanhedrin. But among those who believed in him, we're also told that 
many love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, and so they kept their faith secret. Unlike uh, Nicodemus and Joseph and Arimathea, they, uh, they kept their faith secret. They, they hid their light under a bushel and because they, they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. They didn't want to suffer persecution. They valued the high opinion of men more than the high opinion of God. Concerning that, Jesus has some very pointed things to say. In Luke chapter 9, verse 26, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and his holy angels. If we're ashamed of him, if we, if we don't stand up for our faith and go public with our faith, then he will be ashamed of us. This is a very important matter. If we do not confess him before men, he will not confess us before his Father in heaven. Jesus gets even more serious where he says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The clear implication of these texts is that, that if we are ashamed of Christ in this life, we have no right to think that we have eternal life, that we are indeed in danger of the fires of hell where he will destroy both body and soul forever. We need to go public with our faith. We recently have had a number of young people make profession of faith, and that's a good thing because Romans, 9 verse, Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice it doesn't just say, do you believe, but do you confess with your mouth? Do you make it public? Do you go public with your faith? This text invites us to examine our own hearts and actions, as did the preparatory form for communion, invite us to examine our hearts. Are we living publicly? for Jesus, identifying ourselves as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we putting our light under a bushel? Are we hiding our light because we don't want to be considered religious fanatics? You know, there are many branches of the church, including the uh, Reformed churches in the world today, uh, that have valued the opinion of men more than the opinion of God. Uh, the idea of evolution, you know, or uh, verbal inspiration of the scriptures. Uh, these in academic circles are mocked and laughed at and many people who have pursued academic uh, advanced degrees, uh, master's degrees and, and PhDs and so forth, they don't like being laughed at by the academic community, by their peers in the world. And so they, they compromise on these things and, and then they, uh, they begin to teach those things in colleges, Christian colleges and Christian seminaries. And uh, the faith is compromised because they uh, don't want to be ridiculed and considered to be uh, old fashioned and out of date and out of touch with reality. Uh, this is a great danger in uh, churches, churches that uh, uh, we know well, and uh, no one is immune. We are not immune from it. Uh, 
uh, and it's the same thing in the, on the factory floor or uh, in the shop or in the office uh, where you're working day by day, rubbing shoulders with non-Christians and they're profane and they're abusive of religious people if they know of any and you don't want to experience that abuse and so uh, you keep your, your light hidden. Well, Jesus says, that's not your calling. Your calling is to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, a nation whose job is to make known the wonders of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that they may see your good works and give praise to him. That's our calling, to let our light shine. Let us examine our lives and come before God, confessing our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In his name, amen.